Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you very much indeed um, after all of that. Uh, I have to say that uh, it was um, when I was a youth group leader uh, at Snow Hill in Bath in 1966 that I became aware of the first few moments of the life of the University of Bath. Never did I think, A, I'd be the Bishop of Bath and Wales, and certainly I never thought for a moment that any university worth its salt would ever ask me to speak at it. So it's a great privilege to be here today. And I do want to say thank you for the very kind invitation to present the Gerald Walters Memorial Lecture. And it is indeed a daunting task, but also at the same time a deep honour. And the theme of the lecture this evening is the path to reconciliation and rediscovering a common humanity. And it's born out of a belief that humanity is created to live in harmony, peace and hope. And I address you as someone who is a practical rather than an academic theologian, and I hope as a humanitarian. My my Christian faith has profoundly influenced my outlook and perceptions, though I hope my reflections this evening will be encouraging to secular seekers after a more hope-filled future, believers and non-believers alike. The issues of our common humanity, human dignity and reconciliation, have influenced and affected a great deal of my life. For as long as I can remember, I've had a profound sense of justice, a desire to see the resolution of conflict, the ending of war, and the remaking of the human community. Almost by osmosis, I have embraced the 4th century St. John Chrysostom's dictum. This is the rule of the most perfect Christianity, he said. The most exact definition, its highest point, namely the seeking of the common good. For nothing, he continued, makes a person such an imitator of Christ as caring for their neighbours. Well, while Christianity is my own orientation, In a pluralist society and understanding, as I do, the ethos of other religions and humanist traditions, I believe at their very best, they all seek to define common good as the most exact definition of best practice. The needs of the world are too pressing for time and energy to be wasted on esoteric arguments over belief or otherwise in divine being or beings. At the same time, I'm not seeking this evening to offer a definitive answer to the somewhat larger question, is a different world possible? But I do want to offer from my experience examples of both where clues to a different kind of world lie and offer some reflection on how we might achieve such a world. The times are pressing, and as Martin Luther King once put it, if we cannot find a way to live together, then we shall certainly all die together. Something of the blurb that has persuaded you to come to this lecture this evening offers information about some of the parts of the world in which I have spent time pursuing reconciliation and the making of a different kind of world. These have included Northern Ireland, South Africa, Brazil, El Salvador, Nicaragua, India, parts of Africa, Iraq, Israel and the Israeli occupied territories. But I want to begin this evening, if I may, with three illustrations from my experience and hope that they give some clues as to what I want us to hear together tonight. I've made a number of visits to Gaza over the years and on one occasion I was present on World Women's Day. I was in a trauma clinic where through group therapy women and children who had been traumatized by bombing and destruction were being helped. During the visit, a Methodist colleague and I were presented with a flower. Hers was red and mine was white. We were taken to a block of flats that had recently been levelled in an attack and the flats were close to the so-called security barrier that separates Israel from the occupied territories. A A little impulsively perhaps, but almost in a single thought, the two of us went up to the wall and placed our flowers in a crack in the wall. Symbolically, the red flower spoke of the blood shed by both sides in the conflict, and the white, a symbol of hope and longing for peace. The wall presented a massive barrier, 
but somehow the crack in the wall represented the hope of a small breakthrough in the search for peace. My second illustration is that after the first Gulf War desert storm, I brought together in Southwark Cathedral in London a bishop, a rabbi and an imam and a hundred or so six formers from local schools. And the aim of the day was to explore peacemaking from the perspective of the Torah, the Quran and the Bible. It was a bridge building exercise. And by the end of the day, we had all been enabled in some sense to begin to appreciate the common ground not only of our faith, but of our humanity and acknowledge something of a lost tradition within our respective faiths about, pe about peacemaking. I think all the participants, and certainly I did, left enlightened and I dare say encouraged by both the context and the process. The third illustration comes from time spent in Bangalore in India. At the time, I was director, as you've already heard, of a church-based mission and development <coughs> agency, and I was visiting a street community composed of refugees from violence, economic hardship, and discrimination. Many of them were Dalits, the so-called untouchables. A community of sorts had been based on the roadside outside the local hospital for some 20 or so years. Poverty was endemic and violence frequent. Treated by the then authorities as non-persons, they eventually came under the notice of a group of seminarians who, perceiving their plight, sought to find ways of working with the community in order to establish some kind of status for the residents. Under the local bylaws at the time, a water standpipe defined a dwelling or dwellings. Permanent dwellings offered residents access to health care primary education for young children, and other welfare benefits. But with the cooperation, the community mostly of, comprised of Hindus and the Christian seminarians, standpipes were erected. The community achieved some status. And when I met with its president, it was in a tent over which was erected in the local language a sign which read, now we are a people. My visit took place during the Hindu festival of Diwali and together with the principal of the seminarian, seminary and the seminarians we were invited to a meal on the street. It was generous, there was much laughter and we embraced at the end of the meal. Actually I asked why they didn't eat with us and they said, well don't worry, we will eat after you've gone so we can talk about you. <laughs> Well, many tears were shed that evening, untouchables were being touched, and humanity was being restored, and it was for me one of the most significant moments of my life. Now, these three accounts represent a kind of crossing of boundaries, of walls, bridges, of tables. All of these are symbols of both division and separation. A symbol means literally a throwing together. And these stories represent people being thrown together from different political, social, religious and ethnic backgrounds in attempts at reconciliation. And I'll return to this throughout this address about walls and bridges and tables and something about their significance in the task of reconciliation. Now without, I trust, being unduly pedantic, I want to offer some etymological definitions of reconciliation. The Oxford English Dictionary defines reconciliation as to bring a person again into friendly relations to or with oneself or another after an estrangement. I'm sure it's profoundly accurate, but it is a little dry. And in my studies of the word reconciliation in New Testament Greek, where the actual use of the term is limited to a small number of occasions where St. Paul primarily uses the term, the definitions are somewhat less sterile and matter-of-fact. And one use of the word, translated reconcile, offers the image of a wall broken down, not just simply to the ground level, but to its foundations, in order to establish a new kind of neighbourliness.
In another place, the translation of the word reconciliation offers the idea of coming into the right mind, to, of moving to being now a people from not a people. And these two images of the wall being broken down to its foundation and the making of a single personhood provide something for me of the framework of understanding the nature of reconciliation as well as the potential that a different world is possible. While such an etymological approach offers something of a clue to the nature and possibility of reconciliation, it is necessary to address something of the underlying matrix of virtues and values contained in the process of reconciliation. We might say that reconciliation is the end product and that peacemaking and peace building provide the framework for its construction. Reconciliation cannot be achieved without embracing compassion. Truth-telling, forgiveness and repentance. Now most of these virtues have what we might call the whiff of religion about them and I make no apology for using them. Some of these words though have their close parallels in language which, with, with which we are possibly more familiar. Words and concepts such as accountability, reparation, healing, amnesty, restorative justice come to mind. Any examination of the etymology of such words offers a range of concepts that are surely the foundations of a different kind of world. When, for example, we offer compassion, we empathize. We choose to suffer with or alongside another. If the meaning of our lives is to help others to find meaning in theirs, then we need to offer, offer solidarity with those who are perceived as confused, not needed, dehumanized. However small the intervention, as my three opening stories illustrated, compassion is the starting point. A few years ago, a seminar on the F word was given by both secular and religious people who had been imprisoned, tortured, raped, and suffered in human treatment. I speak, of course, of forgiveness. To forgive means literally to excessively give. It means going beyond what is right and dutiful. At its most generous, forgiveness can be an act of self-giving on behalf of the victim towards the victimizer. Some of you here will remember the story of Gordon Wilson, who on the occasion of the IRA bombing on Remembrance Day in 1987, when his daughter was killed, subsequently went on to offer forgiveness to the killers. Now such an action is as rare as it is difficult to do, to quote Spinoza. But in recent years, and somewhat less dramatically, and certainly less publicly, the idea of restorative justice has become increasingly widely practiced, where victims and victimizers not only meet, but to agree to forgiveness and a measure of recompense. Now, I'm very well aware that recently restorative justice has taken some flack from certain newspapers, but much of what I think has been understood as restorative justice reflects only the ignorance of the newspapers about the true nature and value of such a process. We might want to argue about that. Equally, we might argue semantically as to whether restorative justice is full-blown, excessively given forgiveness. But it certainly takes us into the realm of mutual recognition of common humanity and common good. Both models have value, whether the example of Gordon Wilson or the practice of restorative justice, they present healing for both alike. The term repentance usually gets a bad press. However, in Greek, it comes from metanoia, which means opening up to new possibilities. It carries with it the idea both of turning from and turning towards. And reconciliation requires the practice of such a virtue if there is to be a successful outcome. In South Africa, the Post-Apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission, chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, 
who incidentally tonight is receiving the Templeton Prize in London, and for which I had to turn down my ticket in order to be here. So I am delighted to be here, but I... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but he required of all participants in that process a commitment to truth-telling, however awful the truth might be, in order to progress towards reconciliation. Now, if compassion is the prerequisite to reconciliation and forgiveness, repentance and truth-telling are its concomitants, what we might ask becomes the catalyst that moves people in the somewhat dry words of the Oxford English Dictionary to bring a person or persons into friendly relations after an estrangement. And I want to risk another term, and it is the term grace. So often in what I call the boondocks of peacemaking, the period of time when it seems nothing can ever happen, it is something serendipitous, surprising, that provides for the first footings of the foundation of peace building. Paradoxically, even in the fiercest conflicts, the deepest human need and longing is the overcoming of separateness. I recall a visit from Dr. Ian Paisley to our home a few years ago, a little while after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed. We had never met before, but Dee, my wife, who was in the audience this evening, had taught in his constituency. Over a cup of tea and the usual Irish diaspora conversation about who knows who and who was related and the like, Dr. Paisley turned to me and said, You know, Bishop, when you get to my time of life, you begin to wonder whether you've done it all right. Now, to my mind, that had the potential for being a grace moment. Because this was some time before Dr. Paisley's election as First Minister in the Northern Ireland Assembly, where he partnered with Martin McGuinness as Deputy First Minister, both of them former arch enemies, yet subsequently to become known as the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> and Paisley was later to say to me that McGuinness was a very fine Catholic boy. Some turn around. Perhaps, but in the, after of the aftermath of the Omer bombing in 1998, I met Martin McGuinness as I represented the Archbishop of Canterbury at the memorial service. And taking my hand and looking me in the eye, McGuinness said to me, Bishop, we're in this for the long haul. We have looked into the abyss. We are committed to the peace process. What moves individuals, even groups who have been enemies, into a place where they can contemplate a different world being possible is difficult to define or determine. Grace is the virtue that nurtures hope and hope believes in spite of the evidence and watches the evidence change. Grace has something of a disclosure about it. Grace has that potential of bringing people to the table. It is about a change of heart, a resetting of the mind and the will. Now, in religion, grace is seen as a spiritual value. Grace is a mark of maturity, almost of self-knowledge. Someone has observed that as we grow up, we're told we are special. But with the process of maturation in our inner authority, we come to see everyone as special and unique. As my friend Richard Rohr observes, we start elitist and we end egalitarian. Whether religious or not, finding the inner resources to facilitate such a paradigm shift of the will is essential if peacemaking and reconciliation are to be effective. Grace is a virtue that excludes power, control and violence. Grace enables listening and dialogue, patient activity, one step at a time. Grace waits. Grace waits knowing that it is seldom fully in control of a situation. Grace acknowledges conflict and seeks to transform and diffuse it. Conflict itself, of course, is multifaceted. Conflict wounds people. It convinces folk to single out others for unjust and cruel treatment. 
Conflict provokes violations of human rights and dignity. Conflict plays on the differences between religions and cultures. Conflict can and does destroy symbolic, uh, symbolic cultural references such as art and music and literature and perhaps that rather dramatic incident that we all saw on television a few years ago when the destruction of the Buddhas in Afghanistan took place by the Taliban is perhaps just an illustration of the, uh, that. And yet conflict emerges from the violence that exists in all of us and to deny that there is an inner violence in all of us is in a sense to deny something of our humanity. None of us is immune from conflict and conflict per se is not wrong in itself. But when we recognize that in the words of the Amnesty International strapline we are required to protect the human, then if we address our inner violence and see its potential for transformation and remember that to transform means to change from, conflict has served a useful purpose. When we acknowledge that we're all caught up in the potential for violence, we begin to understand not only ourselves, but something of the hidden violence in others. I remember a black South African friend of mine taking, who living as a part of a Christian community in England in the latter days of apartheid, observing that there was enough anger in the room to start a race riot all by itself. Only to hear one of the other members saying, when Graham says things like that, I want to punch him on the nose. <laughs> Protecting the human is a key to the work of reconciliation. Defining what is human and what it means to be human today is a priority if we are to imagine the possibility of a different world. Can we, for example, learn to use our inner violence creatively to further the path to peace and to protect the human? And what might that peace itself look like? Is it merely the absence of conflict or is there something more existential for us to which we could aspire? As we've seen, all words have their limitations, particularly in translation. And our word, peace, is one such word that has its limitations. In English, it has a passive, almost negative feel about it. And therefore, it sometimes helps to turn to another source. The Hebrew, shalom, which translates in English as peace, etymologically holds a bundle of virtues and attributes and objectives together. At its simplest, shalom is the restoration of the harmony in relationships. It is the righting of wrong relationships. It is the facilitating of love, freedom, mutuality, respect, and abundance for all. Shalom is the restoration of relationships of humans to each other, to the cosmos, to the divine. Shalom is peacemaking as an integrated, holistic act that affects all aspects of human living. It seeks the creation of an environment in which we can all live well and live well together. Shalom is predicated on the belief that human beings have an integral dignity which requires people to live humanly and humanely towards the other. Hatred, conflict, violence and war reduce the dignity of the human despite the fact that, that acts of heroism, self-sacrifice and even generosity of spirit towards the enemy can be demonstrated in such situations and at such times. <coughs> Hidden too in the concept of Shalom is the idea of what in Hebrew is called righteousness or tzedakah, which is a word often interpreted as justice. And this kind of justice is what we might describe as the fulfillment of a duty. That duty is the offering to fellow human beings their rightful portion of those things which make for human flourishing. It is an awarding of power to the powerless, hope for the despairing, and light for those in the shadows. At the beginning of this century, the Earth Charter was launched. It was, and is, a declaration of fundamental ethical principles for building a just, sustainable, and peaceful global society in the 21st century. 
A vision of hope, it seeks to enable a transition to sustainable ways of living and human development. The Charter sees as indivisible the goals of ecological protection, equitable economic development, respect for human rights, democracy and peace. The Earth Charter presents the big picture idea of justice. And many international lawyers have come to recognize it as a soft law document, which, like the United Nations De Declaration of Human Rights, is morally, though not legally, binding upon states. And the Charter calls for a re-examination of values, a search for the common good, and an increased international partnership. And this Charter holds much of the ethos of Shalom, and itself points towards a different kind of world being possible. However presented, undertaking peace building towards reconciliation, whether through formalized peace treaties or between individuals in conflict, as a, is a labyrinthine and demanding process. When the Good Friday Agreement was signed, I observed that it would be between 10 and 30 years before the pain of conflict, its losses, political compromise and traumas would finally lose their grip. Over the past couple of years, I've been informally associated with a group of former loyalist paramilitaries who have been working in conciliation. But such processes are by their nature fragile and their outcome is dependent upon so many factors. Can some measure of rapprochement be achieved between former enemies or other factions within the same loyalist or republican tradition? The danger of localized turf wars breaking out is always present and all too easily the hair trigger response has been the temptation to go back to the guns. But what the early simple steps often lead towards is a kind of transitional justice an expression of hope and intent against very uncertain realities. Human flourishing and living humanly and humanely towards the other is rarely achieved without cost, and the process is inevitably doomed unless there is some awareness, however achieved, of, the recogni of recognizing the human dignity of the other. And I suppose it's probably fair to say that defining human dignity is often better understood through its denial than affirmation. When people are treated as animals or things or subhuman, when those struggling for survival are seen as stray dogs or simply hidden, unseen or not needed, the absence of dignity reveals its necessity. A young woman made homeless at the age of 16 recently told me that it's not only the abuse, the being spat at, the scrounging from waste bins that you experience when you are homeless, it's simply that you're not noticed, ignored, avoided. Around 3000 BC, when the Book of the Dead was written in Egypt, Osiris in his final judgment offers, give bread to the hungry, give water to the thirsty, give clothing to the naked. These requirements of human dignity were taken up by Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, and Jesus, who added to them hospitality to the stranger, care for the prisoner, and shelter for the homeless. In the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, dignity is perceived as the common ideal for all peoples and nations, not simply as a moral or religious moray. Human dignity is a relationship manifested in gestures that we make towards one another in their non or in humanity. An African proverb states that a human being is a human being through other persons. Humanity, therefore, is defined by relationship. And when human beings are isolated in incarceration, blindfolded when tortured, and spoken to only as necessary to achieve the ends of their persecutors, their essential humanity is diminished. The defining reality of being human is relationship. I am because you are, because you are, I am. This is known in Africa as Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is the recognition of the reality that human is defined by relationship, but also that we recognize the humanness of the other. In Christian tradition, the significance of humanness is affirmed by St. John when he speaks of Jesus becoming a human being and pitching his tent among us.
It's the author's way of describing Jesus as one of us. And the pitching of the tent implies the identification with much of humanity that lives without security of land, identity or economic and social well-being. Some years ago I visited an informal settlement on the edge of Durban in South Africa. It was a tented community squeezed between warring factions living in abject poverty and daily fear of violence. Indeed, shooting broke out during my visit. But what touched me, however, was a young woman of about 13 in an ill-fitting dress but with the most perfect English and clearly intelligent, explaining that though apartheid had ended and school was now compulsory, she couldn't go because her parents were too poor to provide the obligatory uniform. Here in this marginal community, riven with both internal and external conflict, a young woman whose dignity and personal safety, education and future were all marked by the dehumanizing realities of poverty, violence, sexual risk and the denial of education, provide for me an all too poignant example of the need to protect the human. So what is it that motivates us to act humanly and humanely to protect the human? Many of us will be familiar with the Jewish story of the Good Samaritan, and I say Jewish because Jesus was a Jew, and the story is attributed to him. In the story, an outcast, the Samaritan, comes to the aid of a Jew who has been beaten and robbed and left for dead. The Samaritan administers first aid, provides transport to a refuge, and pays for his convalescence. What is significant about the story is that Jesus, who told it, though probably not as an original, nevertheless suggests that the Samaritan was motivated neither by faith nor by religious principles nor by hope of reward. And so often that story is used in a completely different way. The story is told in such a way that the victim reduced to being sub or inhuman by others in humanity is restored to humanity by someone who is motivated solely by human compassion. He took care of him in the name of humanity, which had been undone, abandoned him into his hands, which had lost all form, observes Paul Validier. It was the victim's wounds that awakened the Samaritan's respect for disfigured humanity. But the story goes further because it makes us question whether in reducing the humanity of the victim, the perpetrators themselves become some, in some way less human. It opens the question that whenever responsibility is taken for the victim in their reduced humanity, is there not a similar responsibility to rehumanize the perpetrator? Few of us could imagine reaching the state of what we might call humanizing grace that some women in the Ravensbrück concentration camp did when they wrote the prayer discovered on the dead body of one of the many Nazi victims. It read this, Lord, Remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember the suffering they inflicted on us. Remember the fruits we bought, thanks to this suffering. Our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all, their, all the fruits we have borne be their forgiveness. In his account of concentration camp life, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning observed that meaning is possible in spite of suffering. Now we may think the Samaritan story, and indeed that of the Ravensbrück victims, raises as many questions as it does answers, but what it does reveal is that human redemption, salvation, restoration, rehumanizing, call it what you will, promises hope and solidarity and the resurrection of relationship and the sharing of a common table. It exposes the inalienable value of the human person and every social order. We are, in the words of Hans Jonas, to act in such a way that the effects of our action are compatible with the permanence of an authentically human life on earth. Bertolt Brecht observed that whoever helps the lost, he himself is lost. But what he's pointing to is that the reality of all reconciling activity is psychologically taxing, emotionally demanding, but is made the more so by our own profound sense of inadequacy in the face of the reconciling task.
My first ventures in peacemaking were in Northern Ireland, and it was always among simple people doing simple things. I met with a number of groups along the so-called peace walls. Initially, small groups of women and men from both sides of the community would gather together and be encouraged to share accounts of the things that were significant in their daily lives and faith. I attended one evening as favorite Bible stories or hymns were being shared. Initially, surprise was expected from Protestants that you Catholics read the Bible, or from Catholics you sing the same hymns as us. Just those things that were part of their respective traditions had suddenly become significant and a part of their common story. And from the simple story telling at the street level, the movement that was eventually to find its political expression in the Good Friday Agreement began. In storytelling, the sharing of self-understanding, of faith, of hope, as well as the fear and despair, people were discovering that a human being is a human being through other persons. Even though at the time, in the words of Stephen Searle's 1968 protest song, there's something ha happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear. In May 1999, I was in Baghdad as part of a group looking at the impact of sanctions and seeking to find some ways of dialogue with the then regime of Saddam Hussein. One day, accompanied by our minders, we visit the home of a doctor for lunch. And most days, our ever watchful and listening minders left us at lunchtime, but on this day, our host invited them to stay. As we sat around a very noisy table, our host took a large unleavened loaf of bread and broke it in pieces to begin the meal, adding the words, when you come under my roof, we share bread, and in the name of my God, I welcome you. The bread was passed around the table, and friends and strangers, and possibly those who could be described as enemies, shared it together. The doctor and his friends had much they wanted to tell us, but the ever-listening ears posed a threat to their safety. Towards the end of the meal, the doctor beckoned me outside. We will not have long alone, he said, but I've been building a garden for peace on a bombsite, and one day you and I will come and sit here when that peace has come. We entered the garden, we sat down under a fig tree, where we talked for a few moments before the inevitable arrival of our minders. But as we sat there, I was reminded of the words of the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, when he spoke of swords being turned into plowshares, and nation not lifting up sword against nation, nor learning war anymore. The different vision of a, sorry, the vision of a different world being possible, observes Micah, is when all shall sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. And he concludes, each will walk in the name of their gods, and we, he observes as a Jew, will walk in the name of our God. You see, there is within humanity and within religious traditions of all kinds a deep longing for a peaceful, just world. And in political life, there is no one who does not pay at least lip service to such a possibility, but the time is always not now. And the question is, if not now, then when? And if not us, who? A few years ago, a friend of mine who has worked for 40 years in the ghettos of Washington, D.C., and been an activist for peace and justice, told me of a young black woman from his neighborhood called Lisa Sullivan. Unlike many of her neighbors and contemporaries, she had gone to university and returned in time to her community with her studies complete. An activist, she worked among her fellows, most of whom had little hope or believed in any potential for their future. Martin Luther King had spent time in that neighborhood, and Lisa's young contemporaries would ask her, where's the next Martin Luther King coming from? And her response was always the same. We, she would emphasize, we are the ones we have been waiting for. And it's something of that spirit that I want to give in this latter part of my talk this evening. I want to begin with my own discipline, which is theology. I'm aware of the suspicion, some of it rightful, that many have of religion. And certainly many people talk too easily and glibly, naively even, about God. And it's certainly not my intention to overplay my hand from the perspective of religious tradition from which I'm hewn. But I want to reflect that whilst fundamentalism in all religions, as well as in atheism, has much attention, it is not the whole story. Both religious and atheistic fundamentalisms 
are self-contained rational systems. To agree, both to a degree, both are counsels of despair. Each requires a sense of superiority, separation, and belonging. Religious fundamentalists have no hope for the world, perceiving it only as an object of their particular brand of redemption, which in its most extreme forms leads to violence and war. On one of the many occasions when I stood vigil against the first Iraq war at the end of Downing Street in the early 1990s, I met with the woman editor of the then Jewish Socialist. She'd written an article in the journal in which she exposed the dangers and pressures she felt many of her fellows were under to believe that fundamentalist Jews were the real holders of the faith tradition. The temptation is not unique to Judaism. My own journey in peacemaking, as I've indicated, was in Northern Ireland. And it was here that my own individualistic faith was confronted by what might be called institutionalized sin. I use the term with a little care, but what I mean is that I was witnessing at first hand isms and ideologies, the impact as well as the distortion of history and the malign influence of leadership that provoked rather than prevented conflict. At the same time, I was taking a particular interest in the wider conflicts of the world. Vietnam had to a degree passed me by. However, in the conflicts in the Middle East and in Latin America, the struggles of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, the dirty wars of El Salvador and Guatemala, and elsewhere in Central America, and the growth of theologies of life and liberation, particularly among the poor, which seemed to be offering a new understanding not only of faith, but of the potential for creating a different kind of world. Phrases such as a preferential option for the poor were emerging from the gatherings of Catholic bishops, clergy and laity in Latin America, and finding expression in the declericalization and an increasing desire to stand in solidarity with the poor and the form formation of what I call grassroots church communities. And these bodies became the agents of transformation in the favelas, offering fresh hope and humanity to the discarded, the not needed, the confused majority, the people living in the hopeless, helpless side of town, to quote Johnny Cash. What became clear to me was that the hidden tradition was being uncovered in biblical and theological studies. This revelation began with an understanding of God's vision for interrelated communities of humankind and nature, a social vision of intertwining relationships of God with humankind, with one another, with nature, what one theologian called inclusive well-being. And it seemed to me then and now that if salvation, which is the selling point of all religions, is to have any cash value, then it needs to be based not only on the individual restoration of right relationships, but also in the demands and need for social justice and the transformation of the human condition, requiring as, where, and when necessary, the naming and confronting of systems that frustrate God's purposes. Now, I fully understand that such language will find some resistance in an audience such as this, so let me add this. I've peppered this address with a number of stories in which the I moves towards the thou, as Martin Buber would have put it. I recognize that moves towards the other are not the sole right of religion. Self-understanding that recognizes the humanity of the other and the aspirations of the other is common to both secular and religious in the task of peace building. At some level, discrimination, conflict, and violence are addictions into which governments, nations, as well as individuals and communities are caught. All addiction programs that I've encountered over the years take the view that unless some transpersonal self or higher power is invoked, there can be no significant healing. Well, whether that transpersonal self or higher power is found in religion or in some other perception of how we commit to the common good, if we are to progress towards a different world being possible, we need some kind of solidarity around agreed universal values as well as education for peacemaking. For my part, I believe that churches have a major task within their own ambit to rethink their role and place in the task of peace building and reconciliation. Too much of contemporary religion is individualistic, self-centered, and self-obsessed. There needs to be a radical revisiting of the traditions from which we are hewn and our understanding of the divine vision of Shalom. If redemption is the restoration of the right relation, 
then ultimately it has to be revealed in a compassion that invites empathy, excessive giving, and an opening to new possibility. This is the stuff that leads to human flourishing, truth-telling, reparation, healing, amnesty, and justice. I have begun, in a sense, with my own kind, but if there is to be an answer to if not now when, and if not us who, then this is a task that has to be undertaken by us all. What concerns me most about the interference that all governments have made in education since the last late 1980s is the failure to address such questions as what does it mean to be a human being today? How are we to live if this is who we say we are? What kind of future do we want? What are the building blocks of peace among peoples? How are we to live well together and live well together? In recent years, many Holocaust survivors, mostly people now in their 80s and 90s, have been giving talks to schoolchildren about their experiences in the concentration camps of Europe. Up until relatively recently, many of those survivors have remained silent about their traumatic experience. That the stories are now being told as living history gives flesh to the reality of their suffering. Every time there's an incident that horrifies, whether a war, abuse of children, or an accident caused by some perceived negligence, the mantra, this must never happen again, is trotted out. At the end of the European conflict of both 1914-18, such sentiments were expressed. And yet, our world remains one of holocausts, of genocide, of wars, and rumors of wars. So our dreams of a war, holocaust, genocide, free world, just naive optimism, or does such a utopian dream have any basis in reality? We know the reality that war shatters lives and wastes billions every year. We know that people living in the midst of violence know most about the causes, yet are frequently unheard and excluded from the uh, efforts to find a resolution. We know too that making peace requires extraordinary commitment and courage from all conflicting parties. We know too that facilitating a permanent end to violence requires determination and imagination to seek solutions and build trust between conflicting parties and communities. So who's doing that and how? Even the most cursory scan of Google provides many hundreds of references to NGOs engaged in aspects of peacemaking. And while their methodologies may differ, nevertheless their objectives remain those of peace, freedom, mutuality, respect, security and abundance for all. As the Vice-Chancellor has said, I've recently become Chair of Conciliation Resources, a peace-building NGO committed to supporting people at the heart of conflict who are trying to find solutions. Conciliation works to deepen understanding of the nature of particular conflict. It seeks to bring divided communities together and to create opportunities for resolution of differences in a peaceful manner. Conciliation's commitment is to remain for as long as is needed, providing advice and practical resources. And once the initial work is done, and only then, conciliation takes what is learned and presents it to government decision-makers and others working to end conflict in order to seek together ways of improving peace-building policies worldwide. I offer those reflections on conciliation's approach, not as a template nor an inappropriate promotion of its work, but as offering some examples of how a different world is possible in terms of building. First, the key to such strategies of achieving a just and sustainable peace is the voice and place of local persons. Each feeling that their concerns are being met and giving support to the resolution of conflict which affects them. The building of relationships. I am because you are, because you are, I am. The offering of mutual support, the two-way process. A human being is a human being in and through other persons. Second, genuine partnership forms the basis of any strategy. And third, critically, there is a need for engagement while not taking sides. Now much of what has been reflected on here is about a joint learning approach. All conflicts are local, though they may have global consequences. In peacemaking, it is not only those in conflict who have things to learn. The whole experience is a mutual learning exercise. In a recent conciliation resource event on the Kashmiri conflict, one participant observed, I believe it would help resolve the Kashmir conflict if everyone involved in Kashmir, including our senior leadership, could undergo such processes of joint learning. A few years ago, I made a series of short video programs called Changing Lives for Good. 
And one of the most impressive contributions of it was made by a group of school children who'd been learn learning how to use restorative justice to, restore to resolve disagreements, bullying, and fights. Helped by the police and the chaplaincy resources, new attitudes and understanding and ways of resolving conflict were being learned. Now, I've actively encouraged this in a number of environments, both as a bishop and a leader in the community, because it offers restitution, recompense, and restoration. However, finally, I must return to my deepest conviction, which is about how we restore human dignity and see it as a path of reconciliation. If we do what we've always done, we will get what we always have always got. In the past century or so, ours has been a world in which billions of people have died in wars or as a consequence of war. In all that time, few lessons have been learned about how we turn swords into plowshares and cease to make war anymore. In my view, nothing sh short of a curriculum in schools from the earliest key stages through to school leaving that seeks to address, address the raft of questions I articulated a few moments ago. What does it mean to be human today? How are we to live? If this is who we say we are, what kind of future do we want? What are the building blocks of peace among peoples? How are we to live well and live well together? These are key questions. And though history teaches us that history teaches us nothing, seems an overly cynical adage, certainly rote and date learning may inform, but they do not transform. Looking back is only effective if it makes the looking forward better. We need to engage ourselves in a process of learning together to make peace and peace building for a different kind of world. And to do this, we must strive to understand what it is to be human and how we are to live well and live well together. In my experience, movements for peace built begin with those most affected by conflict. The place of the interlocutor who helps build partnerships, engages without taking sides, and learns alongside with everyone else is critical to any ultimate engagement with government decision makers. Here people begin to break down walls, build bridges, and sit at tables. Humanity, my friends, is at a critical juncture. Shattered lives, poverty and billions waste on war affect all of us. We need a new beginning, a fresh understanding of our humanity, of the things that make for peace. It's urgent. The time is now. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Thank you very much.